The title of today's message is Good News. As Christians, we have a vernacular, a language that is very unique to us in our church culture. The churches that I grew up in practiced the habit of calling all the men brother so-and-so, and all the women sister so-and-so. Okay, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Now, if you didn't know that God refers to those in Christ's church as all family, you would probably think it's kind of culty sounding to refer to everyone around you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Another unique churchy word is the word born again. If you didn't know that this is a reference to the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, this might be a medically confusing way of explaining how salvation works, okay? Um, Speaking of weird sounding words, let's take a quick second and think about how disconcerting it might be to walk into a church building, maybe for the first time, and hear the words to the following songs. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That sounds very nice. Or have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Probably looking around saying, is there like a basin full of blood somewhere in this room? That's kind of weird. Honestly, if I was a non-believer hearing those words for the first time in a church building, I could see myself walking out at that point, or at least having 911 on speed dial, just in case something sketchy were to happen. You never know, in service that day. But in all seriousness, it is the uniqueness of our churchy language, this Christianese, that actually unites us together. In fact, few words are more uniting in Christianity than these, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have been in church for any length of time, you have likely heard this phrase used. There is an overly common misconception about this phrase that Jesus came to save us from hell and that the power of the gospel is intended to save us from hell and change our eternal destination to heaven. The misconception is that's all the gospel is, that Jesus saves us from hell. Done. However, that's not true. Have you ever received or been part of an experience that ended up being far greater than what you originally expected it to be? I'm not talking about, you know, some of us are pessimists, or we call ourselves realists, but really pessimists, uh, in the room who are, we're not talking about expecting the worst and then being happily surprised when something good actually occurs. No, we're talking about looking forward to something that you knew was going to be good, and it ends up being even more enjoyable than you thought it was going to be. That's the feeling I'm referring to. And that is actually the feeling that I experienced years ago when I came across this passage here, and actually someone led me to it, and I recognized some of the implications that this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians, has on the full meaning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. I'm going to read a few verses in 1 Corinthians. So if you guys are able, if you could stand for me, with me for the reading just of God's word, and then when we're done, we'll take a seat again. I like active active listening. So we're going to be, this is the one time I'm going to have you stand, I promise. All right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's go ahead and look at verse 17. For, G, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is Paul writing here. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is, is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. 
It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Almost done. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. As you take your seats, I want you guys to consider this question here. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? This morning we're going to seek to define that using scripture three-part definition. The first part is that the gospel is foolishness. The gospel is foolish. The second part is that the gospel is simple. It's simplicity. And the last part is that the gospel is a way of life. Number one, the gospel is foolish. It's foolishness. If you were to read all the way from verses 17, and we didn't go all the way there, but to 29, Paul is very quick to discuss the fact, the reality, that what God offers us in salvation is a very counterintuitive hero story. The hero and his message that he's preaching are said to be ridiculous at face value. In fact, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus to earth, the Holy Spirit led the prophet Isaiah to write these words about Jesus. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him, that we should want him. Here's what these words are implying. They're literally implying that Jesus was not really an attractive man. What can be gathered from these verses about Jesus could also be applied to his gospel. It's not necessarily meant to be an attractive message. Here's what I mean. In verse 22 of our main passage, we read that the Jews require a sign. They're looking to Jesus, and basically their agreement was, hey, we're going to believe in you if you can give us a sign that you are truly Messiah. But instead, he appears to them in verse 23 as an offensive figure. He says, the the way it's interpreted in scripture, it says he's a stumbling block, an offense. How? Well, because Jesus came to fulfill the law that these Jews were trying so hard to follow after. And in doing that, Jesus proved that the Jews were imperfect and needed his perfection. Their religiosity was never meant to save them, but was actually intended to point their faith to the fact that they needed Jesus, a Messiah who could actually save them from their sins. Also in verse 22, the Greeks, in their philosophical pursuit of truth and meaning, they wanted words of wisdom. And instead, they were met with a capital G God who was very unlike their God, King Zeus, if you're familiar with Greek mythology. The one true God wanted more than just worship as the creator. Instead, Jesus coming to earth was proof that this God, this one true God, wanted a personal relationship with mankind. The Grecian search for high and mighty truth was confounded by a loving creator God who had full rights to destroy the creation that was insulting and despising him. But instead, that God to this day still actively chooses to practice mercy and grace by not executing the lawbreakers. The gospel is foolishness. In verses 26 to 28, God makes clear that he is truly seeking all the glory by using those among us who are the least, the broken and the despised to be his messengers. It's very humbling. And it's again, counterintuitive. It's foolish. Why would you use people that ever other, everyone else would look around and say, who's that person? Why would God want that? The power of God is most fully experienced when we as believers humbly admit to him that we are just sinners 
saved by his grace. That is when his power is fully experienced. There's only one room for one hero in our Christian faith, and that space is occupied by Jesus, who by his own power conquered sin, death, and hell. The gospel is foolishness. Number two, the gospel is simple. The gospel is simple, and so this truth should be simply explained. The gospel is all about God getting all of our glory and praise. I want you guys to look at verse 26 as I read and follow along with me. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God deserves all the glory. I didn't write this in my notes here, but I just wanted to take a quick second and call you back to the Old Testament where God calls a harlot in Jericho to save, to keep safe the lives of two Israelite spies. And in turn, for her faith, recognizing, hey, I recognize that this, I might be a, uh, a bad person, but I recognize that this God is the one true God, and I'm going to respond to him. And God saves her family and her life. God used people like David, a great man who did great things, sure. Also a very wicked man, capable of doing very terrible things. God wants to use broken people because he gets the glory out of that. In verses 21 to 24, God is, makes clear that he is only interested in giving us truth that he wants to give. Unfortunately for us in our human pride, what God wants and what we want are often at odds with each other. It's no newsflash to hear this, that what God wants always ends up being for the good. The gospel is simple. God deserves everything because he's perfect. We deserve nothing because we are not perfect. And that's where Jesus comes in, amen? God bridges that gap of sinful imperfection between us and God by covering our sins with his shed blood poured out at the cross for the sins of the world. We are not perfect. God is. There's Jesus connecting those two dots. The gospel is simple, that Jesus is worthy of all praise and all our glory. Number three, and this is where we're going to spend the remaining moments, the bulk of this message in. Number three, the gospel is a way of life. Look at verses 30 and 31 again. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God recognizes that even after we dedicate our lives to him, our broken sin nature will still actively fight against our desire to live for God. You do recognize that that as Christians, you still fight against the flesh. If this was not true, then God would not have commanded Christians via scripture 
to die to ourselves and crucify our fleshly sinful desires on a daily, even moment-by-moment basis. And this is where the gospel is meant to come into effect, affecting every aspect of our lives. Even after we accept God's eternal salvation from the destination of hell, we still need God to save us every single day. This is not blasphemy. This is not heresy. This does not mean that Jesus' resurrection, his sacrifice was not enough. The opposite is true. In fact, this means that in Jesus, we have not just been offered the key to eternal life. We've been offered the key to live life here on earth today. Look at verse 30. We're going to take some of these big theological ideas and condense them to their simplest form. In their simplest form, we're going to explain that through the power of God, God offers us four great gifts. Four great gifts. Church, let me stop here for a second. The last one we're going to mention, the last gift is the one that we're probably most familiar with, that we're redeemed, that we have been saved and rescued from hell to heaven. But that's just one, and there are four things. Let's go ahead and look at those four different aspects of the four great gifts that God gives us. Number one is wisdom. Wisdom is access to God's truth and understanding how to apply it to our lives. Remember that we stated earlier that the gospel is foolishness. Jesus gives us answers to situations and questions that might otherwise appear to be confusing and difficult. A lot of you guys just went, ding, yes, that's where scripture comes in, right? Wisdom. I've talked with multiple people in this room throughout the past past several months about how opportunities that you had at work to share the gospel, or not even the gospel, just a practical truth with somebody. Hey, don't be stressed out. That person is making bad choices, and you know what? You're telling your coworker, hey, their choices are going to take them down. They don't have to pull you down. God tells us that in his word. What is that? That's wisdom. You're taking God's truth and with the Holy Spirit giving you understanding, applying it to a real life situation. The gospel gives us wisdom. Access to God's truth and understanding how to apply it to our lives. Number two, righteousness. Now, this is a very deep theological term with deep meanings and consequences, but It's an overarching term, simply, that refers to the literal, actual goodness of God. In its simplest form, that's what it is. The actual goodness of God, his righteousness. You and I are sinful beings. Not only do we do bad things, we are capable of doing even more terrible things than we might even know (laughs) yet. (laughs) Um, We are desperately wicked, wicked people inclined to do evil things. The best that we can do is described in the book of Isaiah as filthy rags. And yet God offers us a solution. When what we do is done through Christ's name and for Christ's glory, our works of righteousness become acts of love, received by God as a sweet-smelling savor. And Jesus completes our imperfect works with his perfection. Church, not only are we offered wisdom, we're offered the literal, actual righteousness of God. We actually read in the New Testament that when Abraham placed 
his obedience and his faith in Christ and in God. We read that in Scripture it says, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That word imputed means, imputed means it was, think of our sin as a, an account, a ledger of all the things that we've done wrong and the debt that we owe, the sin debt that we owe to Christ. And when we read that it was imputed unto him for righteousness, that faith, what that means is at the bottom of that ledger or across that ledger, however you want to look at it, God says, paid, forgiven, debt closed. The righteousness of God. It is a very deep theological term, but what that means, church, is that today, in our brokenness, we live and experience forgiveness. We can experience forgiveness on a daily basis. The righteousness of God. It's not just something that belongs to him, only he's now offering it, uh, offering it to us through his, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus completes our imperfect works our sin, that are scarred by our sinfulness with his perfection. He meets it with his perfection. Number three, sanctification, even bigger theological word. When you and I receive Jesus Christ as Savior, theologically, two major actions simultaneously occur. A, God separates us from being lost in sin and causes us to be found in Christ, making us part of his kingdom and family. I'll say that again. The first thing that happens is God separates us from being lost in sin, causing us in that same moment to be found in Christ, making us part of his kingdom and his family. That's the first thing that happens. Letter B, the Holy Spirit also begins the process of changing us to become more like Christ in our everyday lives. Combine together these two major actions, becoming part of the family of God and the process of becoming more like Jesus. That's what this word represents sanctification. This is huge. Stop and think about it. God knows that you and I are not perfect and never will be. That's my favorite thing to say to some of my students in the Christian school when I have to have a chat with them about a bad choice they made. A lot of them beat themselves over the head because they're trying. They, for the most part, they really are trying to do what's right. And so even after I correct them, I always remind them, hey, listen, are you supposed to be perfect? Are you perfect? No. Are you supposed to be perfect? No. Does God say he wants you, he needs you to be perfect? No. Okay. God knows we're not perfect. So he sent Jesus to us as a perfect payment for sin to show us a perfect example of how to be a human that lives for God and to be perfect for us in the times that our imperfection would otherwise destroy us. If you're like me, you're capable of making some pretty dumb choices. Hopefully they don't affect too many people in a negative way, but inevitably that happens. And when we are able in our sinful state as believers to remember that, hey, God is perfect and I am not, in those moments where we can see our imperfection beginning, our our choices, our, our imperfect choices begin to affect the course of our lives, the relationships that we have with other people around us, We have access to the wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ saying, hey, God, give me the words to say. Give me the wisdom to make the right choice here. I'm heading down this wrong path. And God, 
as you're making me more like you, I need you to make my choices more like the choices you would make. When Jesus gives us sanctification, he gives us both the future life in heaven and a fulfilling life here on earth. Jesus, with sanctification, Jesus offers to do life with us. Number four, redemption. I mentioned this at the beginning before I started going through all of them. Redemption is this is the fact that God has spiritually speaking stamped us with his royal seal, saving us from, from the fires of hell and claiming us as part of his kingdom. We are not just saved by Christ, we are loved by Christ as brothers and sisters, joint heirs with Jesus as the scriptures state. When rulers in bygone eras and years prior, uh, many eras before, <laughs> were, would create or authenticate documents, they marked them as officially approved or recognized by dripping hot wax onto that document. And as that hot wax cooled and began to solidify, they would praise, play, uh, press a royal signet ring into that wax. That ring had engraved onto it a unique and distinct family crest. Anyone who came across that document would understand who it belonged to or who it was authenticated by. With Christ, our designation, our authentication, as sinners saved by grace shows that we belong to God. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he will continue, and he, sorry, he, the gospel, the miracle of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that all at once he saved us from hell he who continues to save us from our sin nature today, and he will keep us saved until the day that God makes all things new. This is the gospel. God wants to do life with us, not just in the future, but today. So what is the gospel? Number one, it's foolish. It is foolishness. Prioritizing God over man and yet benefiting both parties. Number two, it's simple. It puts God at the center of life itself. Why? Because he deserves it. Number three, it is a way of life. It's everything. Placing Jesus into the, lo- into the lives of believers. Offering a pers- personal relationship with a perfect God who, again, wants to do life with us. In closing, I want to leave you with two challenges. The first is, if you have never accepted the message, the gospel of Jesus before, this could be the day that you choose to believe it, that you choose to accept it. God loves you and wants to save you from your sin and its eternal consequences. That is the first and foremost primary message of the gospel. If you're a believer, this is speaking to you, let these next few moments be an opportunity for you to die to your flesh, to your sins once again. Let these next few moments be a restart where you and I surrender to God and allow him to have a daily active role in our lives. By the way, this moment of surrender should be occurring constantly in our lives. It's how we die to ourselves. It's how we crucify crucify the flesh and allow God to take control when our sin nature, our fleshly desires, want to take control. 
Jesus saved us from hell, yes, but he wants to do so much more than just that. God wants the gospel to affect the kind of parent you are, the type of friend you are, the type of coworker you are, the type of student you are. He wants his gospel, his good news, to affect everything about our lives. The question for us today is, are we going to allow him to do that? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we gathered around your word, and we asked ourselves the question, what is the gospel? Hopefully from your word, I've explained it in terms that can be understood, but we recognize that the gospel can be foolishness to those who are outside of Christ. We recognize that the gospel is simple that you deserve all the glory. And we recognize, God, that more, more, more than anything else, the gospel is a way of life, doing life with you, Jesus. I pray today that if there are any who are not believers this morning, that they would take a moment, an opportunity to connect with you and start their relationship with you. God, you told us in your word that you didn't just love the world, you so loved the world. In fact, you loved it so much that you sent your son to die for us. And so I pray for those in this room that are not believers, that today they would at least consider your gospel message, that you love the world. For those Christians in the room, God, I pray that you'd help us to either begin or continue that habit of surrendering to you moment by moment, day by day, with our pride, our sinful desires, giving those over to you, surrendering so that you can take control. Life was not meant to be lived inside the walls of this church. God, you meant for life to be lived outside in the streets, in our homes, in our places of work, in our places of entertainment and fun and relaxation. God, you wanted to be involved in all those areas. And so this morning, God, as a church, we ask that we would be surrendered to you so that you can live your gospel through each and every single one of our lives. I'm going to ask the pianist to come forward now. And in these moments, as they begin to play, take an opportunity to consider those two challenges. The first one was, again, if you are not a believer, today consider the gospel, that Christ loves you, that God loves you. He died for the world. And he wants to be in a relationship, a personal relationship with you. This is not religion. This is a relationship with God. If you are a believer, then your challenge is this. In these moments, God, I recognize that I need you every day. And some days I get away from that. Some days I think I'm better than needing you fully. And then those days... I fall flat on my face. God, today, we're going to commit moment by moment to remember to surrender our lives to God. That every single day, the gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to impact us and influence the type of person that we are.
with our church family today. Our guests are gathered here today. We thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it unites us with its truth that you love the world and you sacrificed yourself for it. We pray now as we end the service, you help us to um, leave this week having a renewed focus on who you are and who you called us to be as individuals. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.